All right. So this is another podcast, uh, Professor Latinx here, but um, I have Rachel and Zachary here with me to talk about Captain Marvel, the movie. It's been out for a couple of weeks now. And last time we, Rachel and I talked about it, we were sort of speculating and we'd seen that Rotten Tomato and IMDb, uh, IMDb had been getting bombed by that toxic fandom out there, but it's like killing it at the box office. So we're here today just to talk a little bit about the actual movie. So um, I was really like pleasantly surprised and happy by it. I, I actually liked the the um, directing, the pacing, um, but yeah, let's jump in. I know we all have sort of different ideas. Yeah, I mean, I really enjoyed it as well. I thought it was a lot of fun. And um, I, I, a lot of my research is grounded in the 90s. So I was happy to have this set in the 90s with Captain Marvel crashing through a blockbuster video store uh, as like her entrance on into Earth <laughs> or re-entry into Earth. Um, there were just a lot of like really pleasurable things about the film. Yeah. Yeah, what's been particularly astounding is how well it's been doing in foreign markets, uh, particularly the Chinese market. I think the last totals to come out were about $130, $140 million there. Uh, it's still not domestically up to the same totals that Wonder Woman had. I think domestically when Wonder Woman came out, that was 2016, uh, pulled in about $420 million domestically. Captain Marvel's about $100 million behind that. But the international audiences are really aggressively going out and seeing this film. Yeah, why do you think that is, Zachary? I, you know, I, I think a big part of it's got to do just with the Marvel brand itself at this point. I mean, we are 20 films in. It's a very strongly established universe. She's a character that's going to play an integral role in Endgame. And let's face it, DC has not done a very good job with their own cinematic universe. I mean, what is it? The DCAU, the alternate universe or whatever it is that they use. So I, I'm, I'm shocked how well it's playing, not just here, but abroad across the entire world. And it just it just came out last week in Japan. So that's just going to continue to add on to that foreign total. Yeah. So, Rachel, you were talking about the 90s. And I wonder... Um, I mean, for us, there are all of these like, like spectacular kind of little tidbits that blow up into this big picture for us because we're, you know, either we're fans of the 90s or we actually grew up in the 90s, right? <laughs> um, as uh, someone who was, you know, in their young uh, 20s. But um, I also love the, uh, the Blockbuster, not, not only because it's Blockbuster and I used to go there and, uh, you know, that's how I would consume my movies through VHS. But also I loved that it was the kind of the beginning of all these little signposts that kind of like use pop culture to mess with pop culture from a very sort of empowered, like feminist perspective. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, the 90s are really significant in terms of a temporal setting. Um, certainly, I think that Kelly Sue DeConnick, who kind of reinvigorated Carol or uh, Captain Marvel as Carol Danvers, um, who also grew up during the 90s, also was kind of making a name for herself during that time. And I think I talk about this a lot with uh, my friend Lauren McCubbin over at CCAD, uh, obviously because it ties into my research, but just, you know, I think there was this wave of women who were creating comics in the 90s that kind of um, 
that that broke against the industry. Um, and it was a really inhospitable time for um, in terms of the industry's relationship to marginalized creators. So it's really interesting to me that they chose that kind of temporal setting um, to bring us our first um, female-led Marvel movie. I think it's a little bit of a tribute to all of those women, both in the mainstream and then who are creating comics independently themselves, um, self-publishing, uh, whose voices were kind of silenced during during that era. Yeah, that's good. Um, I love that because... What do we see? We see her pick up, uh, what is it, The Right Stuff, VHS, <laughs> which is like hyper-testosterone, right? All that yeah. kind of, like all the dudes. Mm-hmm. Um, Sam Shepard as Chuck Yeager, right? I mean, it doesn't get any more masculine than that. And then you have, um, uh, or a kind of machismo masculinity, right? And then you have um, that great moment when she, like, you know, basically you know, fires at the shot at Schwarzenegger, the, yeah. the, the True Lies poster. So, yeah, you mentioned, you know, what's going on with comics, especially kind of indie comics scene as a space that's kind of clearing for voice and experience of women. And then you have the kind of enactment of this re-territorialization, you know, in these, in these kind of moments in the blockbuster yeah, it's very much like how, I mean, my research is invested in um, kind of letting those voices resurface once again, but it's very difficult to get access to those materials. So I like to fantasize about, you know, this all-powerful woman um, who's not acculturated to to that time period, to that to that hyper-masculine culture who's just kind of dropped on in a blockbuster, existing at the same time as girls are standing at the Xerox machine, photocopying their work and, and, and circulating it. So cool. Intergalactic yeah. patriarchy, Zachary. <laughs> what do you, how would you respond to that concept and Captain Marvel? Oh, what, what is it? Uh, the, the crawl, right? Or krill? Which, which one is it again? Scroll? I, the, the scroll scrolls? and the Cree. <laughs> no, no, no. It's uh, the, the Cree. Uh, yeah, Cree. Okay. I, I'm sorry. I had crawl from the 1980s <laughs> stuck in the back of my head there. Uh, but the, the Cree... Are, are they androgynous? I mean, I like across the Marvel Cinematic Universe, I can't remember if I've actually seen a, a female Kree, unless I'm forgetting something. So I don't know if they're androgynous. So I wouldn't technically go on ahead and associate them as being patriarchal until I have that clarification. And the Kree I, are I, like what Jude Law is in the film. Yeah, yeah there are women in yeah, that group. They're women. Okay. Jimmy Chan yeah. plays. Who, who were the ones that showed up in the ship at the end then? Aren't those also the Kree? Those. No, those. I think you're confusing them with the. the, the yeah, the okay. scrolls the are scroll. like the yeah. The refu- you've got <laughs> the, the, refugees re- the refugees that are yeah. pro- for you seemingly androgynous, right? They're the ones that are in search of a new home. Yeah. Okay. So take it from there. Well, no, no. I was thinking about the ones that came and fired all of those planet-busting missiles at the Earth right at the end. So the Cree. That, yeah. <laughs> Yes. That, that's that's still the Cree. Yeah, they yeah. they okay. have dudes. <laughs> so, so okay, so the Cree are incredibly yeah. diverse then yeah. in terms yeah. of colors and all other sorts of stuff. Mm-hmm. That's kind of fascinating. Yeah. Uh, well, okay. Let me take you to a specific moment. Okay, so there's the moment when um, Brie Larson is Captain Marvel at the end that sort of resonated with me, um, where she is with Jude Law as um, as um, as a uh, Rog. And he basically says, come on, 
drop your weapons. Let's just duke it out. I, I trained you. Let me see what you've got. I trained you. Let me see what you've got. And she's like, pulls out her blaster and, you know, blasts them. Like, I don't need to prove anything to you. And it seems like it's kind of all the signposts lead up to this great moment where, you know, you have these flashbacks of like her shaming as a little girl, as a tomboy. You mm-hmm. have all. And then in the end, the message is, look, we're, we're not doing it for you. I cried. <laughs> yeah. Do you want, Rachel, let's hear it from <laughs> no, you. <laughs> I, I want to let Zach talk as well, but yeah. <laughs> uh, first of all, that particular scene that you're pointing to there after the climax was completely hilarious. Uh, and it does come back to what some of our students were talking about earlier this afternoon about how he was demanding validation on his terms, on male terms in a combat arena. And she what a blaster she just uh that was it she controls energy and fires it right through her fists right mm-hmm. uh yeah like i i thought that was probably the best scene of the movie that does go on ahead and circle together the entire narrative at that point then not just for carol danvers when she thought she was a cree but also the overarching narrative of her in the air force as a child all of those things together definitely yeah i mean uh- I get. I can only speak from my own experience, but um, being being a woman in kind of a male dominated field, you definitely have those moments of like, I have to, I got to prove it. I got to, you know, trot out all my knowledge here. And so that moment was really effective for me where she's, you know, she doesn't, she's not going to play on others terms. And she kind of models that for us, which I think is a unique way to situate an all powerful superhero. Yeah, yeah, that's great. So one of the things that I was really um, anticipating and then pleasantly, I'm not surprised, but just pleasantly, it, it actually unfolded the way I thought it might. Maybe you guys have a different idea, but I was thinking, you know, with Anna Bowden and then Ryan Fleck as helming, co-directing this, and they'd cut their teeth on things that were much, you know, they were certainly not superhero. These are like indie filmmakers, um, and then I was comparing even before I went to see Captain Marvel with, you know, Ryan Coogler and his Fruitvale Station. And then, of course, Jam, uh, James Mangold's, you know, 310 to Yuma and his other stuff. Then go them going into a superhero movie um, and doing these extraordinary things. I think Logan's maybe my favorite, right? Love Logan. Yeah. yeah. Um, and yeah, so maybe we can talk about that, the, the sort of bringing indie directors in and what that does to a superhero movie that, you know, we might not find if we just went with the regular stuff. Well, I mean, that dates all the way back to the start of the MCU with uh, Iron Man. I'm drawing a blank on the director. John Favreau. Uh, John Favreau. Uh, you go on ahead and you look at his filmography before that, you wouldn't necessarily say, hey, this is the guy that should direct this big summer blockbuster. Uh, So it's always been Marvel Studios' MO, it feels like, to go on ahead, take a chance, go out there and select people uh, that they feel can bring their artistic vision to life in the best way. Yeah, I mean, like, uh, I'm forgetting, I'm also blanking on the name of uh, the director of Thor Ragnarok. Does so, any, yeah, YTT. Yeah, and that film is delightful yeah. um, in a really unexpected way because uh, it's kind of a spinoff or a subplot um, that's also two and a half hours long. But yeah, uh, 
Yeah, I mean, just to follow up on what Zach is saying. Um, so actually, yeah, maybe it's more the norm with Marvel, right? Maybe it's DC that's <laughs> like the one that we should be hitting, you know, Zach with the club. Yeah, I was about to <laughs> say Zach Snyder is awful. Yeah, so we need to get, that's where we get the club out, right? <laughs> okay. But yeah, I mean, it like just like Zachary was saying, it you know, it affords um, a diversity of voices and um, immediately shifts our expectations of what we'll get to see on screen and i think that's like for a film universe that's like so expansive that's so generative and yeah especially we see it uh, at least i this you guys tell me what you think but when you know auntie danvers with maria rambo seemed to i mean gosh those were kind of exceptional moments in sort of as pauses in a movie that's basically implauded by kind of action and some origin story right mm-hmm. yeah these kind of human moments of connection where we're seeing a different kind of transference of power um looking looking down at this little girl and 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 seeing that kind of like lineage spin out is very is fun well, and the thing I like the most about that is that's the way that uh, Maria is with Carol before she's Captain Marvel. Yeah. Before she's even the secret test pilot. She just has this charisma about her as a character that Maria is able to already go on ahead and perceive, even if it hasn't manifested itself yet in the frame for us to go on ahead and see it yet. Yeah, and... um you know, it's interesting that moment, and I know some of the kind of queer community have identified sort of the significance of the relationship and how it's given some real feeling and some texture and some time. But you know, I remember like my my mom and like Auntie Linda lived together, but it could never be talked about in the way that we might today. Mm. And so I love that, like the our sort of LGBTQ communities also seeing that or it's resonating with them as well. Yeah, that these relationships are encoded with so much for the fans and that they get so much out of um, seeing that close either friendship or romance between these two women on screen is it's really it's great. Yeah. And uh, of course, with the suggestion and this is where I'm going to sort of lean on you, Zachary, that we might have the new generation of, right, a Marvel with the daughter, right? Well, yeah, I mean, that's the fascinating thing coming into this, because it's 24 years in the future now when she's showing up in Endgame. So, you know, little girl Rambo is now going to be mid-30s. She's actually going to be older than Carol. So it will be fascinating if Brie Larson decides to do a sequel movie. Obviously, she's already in Endgame. Uh, and maybe one or two other films before uh, passing passing the torch. We already know that uh, Robert Downey Jr., Chris Evans, Chris Hemsworth, they are more or less done with the MCU at this point. I think the most recent Endgame trailer kind of indicates that because it's those three characters specifically where we go on ahead and we have the black and white framing uh, for scenes from their first films. So I don't know if that's mm. Marvel going on ahead and giving a signpost there that this is the end for the founding members of the MCU, uh, or if that's just them going on ahead and having some dramatic flair to it. Uh, but uh, Robert, Dan- Robert Danny Jr., 
he's 52. Obviously, they show with Samuel L. Jackson. They can go on ahead and they can take you back in the DeLorean about 30 years or so there. Uh, so maybe he sticks around a little bit longer. But all the interviews I've seen, especially here during the past two years, I think what they are going to try and set up is uh, a Riri Williams movie spinoff. And I would love to see that. Uh, the comic has not been all that well received. A lot of that has had to do with story. But I think once you get uh, a good group of screenwriters in there to go in ahead and craft a proper origin story for Riri that uh, connects that emotional sensitivity that she has uh, on screen versus what they went on ahead and they did in print with uh, the Ironheart series, I think she's going to take off just like we saw with Miles Morales and Into the Spider-Verse here this last fall. Yes, Riri and Kamala Khan, let's get them both on screen. That would make my heart so happy. Definitely. <laughs> Very cool. Um, so I give this two thumbs up. Yeah, I mean, it was it was fun. Um, I think that there were some like pleasurable twists to, you know, with obviously, as I talked about before, the temporal setting and um you know, just the way that they're engaging with their own uh, Marvel-made popular culture and then a wider popular culture is fascinating. So. And something I did miss, but I saw on the internet, and this gets back to your point about the 90s being a really important moment for creators like Kelly Sue. Mm-hmm. She does a cameo, right, in the subway? Yeah, and it's I, it's one of like the first big writer cameos since like Stan Lee. So I, in my mind, it was almost like a passing of the torch kind of thing. I hope that maybe we'll have a Tana Hezzy Coates cameo, a Roxanne Gay cameo. Oh, um, yeah. That would be exciting. Really Alison cool. Bechdel, for <laughs> that matter. Bechdel Seriously. Cameo. Yeah. Did she write a Marvel comic book? <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> yeah, like, I'm not yet. <laughs> yeah. I'm sitting maybe here and thinking <laughs> just simply along the lines of getting in some of these indie comic creators <laughs> and the fact that this movie passes her test with flying colors. Oh, yeah. You're, oh, you're thinking of the Bechdel test? Yeah, yeah. for sure. Oh, speaking of uh, representation, we can't forget the fact that we have, even if they're in Alien Face, we do have Gemma Chan and we have um, uh, Dominican Latinx actor um, Soto Perez and also uh, Jamun uh, Honsu, right? Yes. Um, playing... Um, um, so yeah, we've got actual like folks of color, even mm-hmm. if they might be an alien face. Well, and I, I definitely feel like that's going to be part of, uh, who is it? Feige, uh, that runs, uh, Marvel studios, if I'm not mistaken. I think that's definitely part of phase four. We brought up Riri miles has already proven that he's a box office draw. So it depends on how long they stick with, uh, whoever the current Spider-Man actor is. I, I feel terrible that I can't remember the actor's name right off. I also can't remember him. Uh, <laughs> All I can think about is Miles. <laughs> so I, I think this is going to be a much more racially diverse Avengers cast that we're going to see from uh, 2020 through 2030 uh, during the next few phases of the MCU. And I'm very much excited to see it uh, based on the first 11 years of what they've produced. They've shown that there is... Uh, a lot of heart. There is a lot of focus on making these fleshed out characters and not simply taking the comics and slapping them on the screen like DC has done cinematically. So, yeah, very excited. Cool. All right. Thanks, guys. Thank you.